0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. This is the predictions are easy, especially when nobody cares if they're wrong episode. I'm Cardiff Garcia. On the show today, the five known unknowns about the global political economy of the future. We'll be talking with Dan Dresner, professor of international politics at the Fletcher School at Tufts University and an online columnist at The Washington Post. In the summer, he published a paper about this very topic for the Brookings Institution and we'll be talking to him about the geopolitical implications of the U.S. presidential election as well. But first, I'm joined by co-host Mary Childs, investment correspondent at the FT. Mary, how are you?
2: I'm great. How are you?
0: Mary, you have a kind of clairvoyant quality about you, I think.
2: Thank you. Why is that?
0: I don't know. But like if you told me that it was going to rain tomorrow, I'd probably believe you. But more relevant to what we do professionally, uh, you cover hedge fund managers, you cover Mm -hmm. asset managers. Mm -hmm. There is an element of prediction that's kind of inherent to their business model. There's There's a difference between predicting the future and profiting off of that prediction, even when it's right.
2: Yeah, I think there's a very stark difference. Sort of the the example that comes to mind is David Einhorn in 2007 warning against Lehman and its sustainability and he was, you know, money good on that call and then was down, you know, more than 15% in the crisis because he didn't capture the magnitude of of the ripple effects, right?
0: Yeah. There were also a lot of economists who broadly predicted that a crisis might be coming, but they kind of guessed wrong the specific manifestations that it would end up leading to, right? So, I mean, Nouriel Roubini, I think, is maybe the best example of this, where he laid out the foundations, the fragile foundations, of what was wrong with the financial system and everything. But in the aftermath, he said things like the dollar would crash. He said a few other things that didn't reflect the likelihood that essentially everybody would recognize the US as still the one place that provides the global safe asset and everybody flocked to it, right? We're going to be talking about all that and more but in the political realm with Dan Dresner, who joins us now. Dan, how are you, man? I'm doing great. Uh, uh, good to be here. Dan, in addition to writing things for Brookings and teaching at the Fletcher School, uh, you also are an online columnist. We used to call what you do blogging.
1: Yes, and yet we mm-hmm. don't really call it that anymore, do we? It's, it's strange in terms of the language. Like i occasionally say, I wrote something. I, 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 I resist saying I blog something. I don't know why. It, it has The language has changed on this. Is
2: anyone still a blogger? I am. I, I think are? actually,
1: I still am, but it, but it's it's like suddenly you can't say that word in the same way. Like I'll say I posted something. Is it like that... being
2: a hipster? You can't
0: self-identify <laughs> exactly. Or... Yeah,
1: you know that's why I shave my beard too. Mm. It's also why I emphatically
0: do say that I'm a blogger. Um, but Dan, you were also one of the I think first academics who was blogging quite a bit on your own uh, back in the day. I think when you were still at uh, the University of Chicago, or maybe even before then. I've been doing this for
1: 14 years. Okay. Yeah. And so, you still yes. and you still
0: shed the mantle. I, you know- Do I, hiss you know, there okay. you go. No loyalty. <laughs> right. I, I
1: took the Boeing. You know, once I started writing for the Washington Post, suddenly I became establishment. Yeah, I know. There you go. There
0: you go. Not, not cool at all, says the guy who writes <laughs> at the Financial Times. I was going to say, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, your paper is called The Five Known Unknowns About the Next Generation Global Political Economy. But you start your paper not with the five known unknowns. You start your paper with a discussion of- the sort of essence of prediction, right? The biases that affect it, the cognitive biases in many cases that we all sort of suffer from. I don't know if "suffer from" is the right word. That we're all, in we're, right all we're all hardwired, vulnerable yeah. to. Yeah. yeah. How does it affect uh, the way we try to predict big events in the global geopolitical economy?
1: Well, there's sort of a paradox because the the reason I started writing this, this actually started off as a blog post for the Washington Post, actually. So, you, you know, it, it's a, a very
2: long blog post. A, yeah, well, it, I
1: eventually, <laughs> you know, I decided it would be better in another format. We need some kind of way of thinking about the future we need to predict it's in some ways in our very nature as individuals and also obviously large organizations definitely need to have a sense of what to expect you know down the road even if they know that that expectation might be wrong they want to at least have some kind of baseline and the problem is is, is twofold first when we tend to predict things our natural tendency is to basically extrapolate from the recent past we will take a look at what's happened over the last couple of years and we assume we will just Sue me, straight line you know, extrapolation on what that is, and that must be what the future looks like. And that's an easy thing to do. And it's tempting because to think, oh, well, it's been like that recently. Surely it will continue to be like that. So that's one mistake we make. The other mistake we make, I think, is we tend to confuse risk and uncertainty. Um, and this goes back in terms of economics, back to Frank Knight in the 1920s, where risk is something that you can place probabilities on. You know, when Nate Silver says there is a, I think at this point, 70 percent chance that Hillary Clinton will win the election. If Donald Trump wins the election, Nate Silver can legitimately say, look, I, I said there was a 30 percent chance that could happen. That's not necessarily wrong. Um, that's as opposed to uncertainty where you literally cannot put a probability on anything happening. You just don't know. And the fact is we like risk much more than uncertainty. We can deal with risk, and I think as a result, consumers of predictions – um, will prefer that kind of faux certainty, even if the person making the prediction doesn't have it. So as a result, a lot of people in the political risk industry will often market their ability to see things by putting sort of precise probabilities on things that actually aren't all that precise, but it makes us feel good.
0: Yeah, that need for precision, Mary, is something that I think you come across uh, in your all reporting the time. quite a bit.
1: That's
2: one of my favorite things when people are like, well, the stock market could rally 10% or fall 7 <laughs> And you're like, well, that's tell right. me more. Why, why seven? Goodness.
1: But what's interesting about this, or, too— Or they would say 7.31%. That's right. When you go to the hundredth percent, that's— It doesn't count that's, if you don't—yeah. Exactly. Right. Then you know they're really precise.
2: One thing that I liked in, in your paper was the the kind of point that the market for making predictions is sort of fraught in and of itself because it is so um, difficult and, you know, the, the ability to successfully navigate it is, you know, very rare, if not non-existent. Thus, the people who are who find themselves like the the career risk is you're going to make a dumb prediction and everyone's going to know it and then you're kind of done. And so there's just too much risk for a a lot of people who end up going elsewhere. And then those that that stay in the industry maybe do shallow predictions or 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 it lends itself. Exactly.
1: Or as, as one person in the political risk industry told me that part of the other problem is, is that the public face of what these people do might often be somewhat different from the sort of bespoke research that they talk about. So mm. I've, I've looked, I, I occasionally have looked at the, the actual bespoke research, and some of it is actually, I think, quite good. I mean, at least you see they're pretty good in terms of methodology. But the problem is, is that unless you've actually bought the research, the question is, how do you know about this? And so you read their public stuff, and their public stuff is often inflammatory because they, they have an incentive to do that. As, as one of them put it to me, you know, you scare the bleep out of them, mm. and then that gets them in the front door. Um, And so as a result, sometimes it's hard to to know when they're making the public predictions how much they actually believe them in the first place.
0: It also strikes me that uh, this is partly a problem of who the customer is for this kind of prediction, right? If this did stay in the marketplace or in the realm of investors or something like that, then the market might actually end up taking care of it. So if you had all these shallow people making these predictions and you bought it and then you invested based on it or you you changed whatever your company was going to do based on it and it didn't work out, at some point they'd get found out, you'd fire them. The problem is that actually the people who are using this information, these predictions are big, important political institutions and policymakers that could end up changing the geopolitical landscape.
1: That's part of it. Um, although I will say that I think one of the other things that's going on is that a lot of private corporations use, you know actually pay for this research, but you're right in the sense they don't necessarily implement it. In some ways, it's a CYA move in that- um, they're almost obligated to get the political risk analysis so if something does go south they can say look we did our due diligence on this without actually looking at the quality of the research sometimes and so as a result you're right in some ways that it's an implicit subsidy for this industry as well and it actually i think further confuses sometimes public sort you know public agencies because they will look at an organization and think Oh well if they're doing political risk analysis for this Fortune 500 company they must be good we therefore infer that they that we should actually rely on their advice and i think that's another source of misperception
0: that's kind of interesting like it's something that people use like to make themselves feel better about what they're doing right. rather than something they actually put into play
2: and then there's the, I think you cited the example of the, um, you know, of, of things that started out sort of as a marketing attempt that then accidentally caught fire and became like an actual policy thing that shaped prescriptions and shaped like the uh, the bricks comes to mind. The I bricks think.
1: was the brainchild of a Goldman Sachs uh, marketing person, and suddenly it it has become a real thing. So um, there's a there's a social science term called performativity, which you know talks about this. The notion that if you actually describe something, the description in and of itself has enough power so that it actually. Winds up becoming a prediction. Those are really rare, though. Most, much more often, someone makes a prediction. I mean, everyone since the BRICS has tried to come up with some other acronym. I think I've heard MICTA, I've heard MINTS, I've heard other things. None of them have mattered in the slightest. So, mm-hmm. in some ways, it is kind of like a, a a black swamp.
0: You draw kind of an interesting contrast too between the economist's optimism bias and the political science pessimism bias, right? So. For multilateral institutions, in particular, it's kind of a running joke that they're constantly uh, having to downgrade their forecast because they've been so optimistic for so long, right? I, I didn't actually know that political science scientists tend to have the opposite problem, which is that they always think the world
1: is going to go to hell, and then it doesn't. To be fair, that's most I I don't want to put all political scientists there. It's mostly international relations scholars, but okay. yeah, um, yeah, it was it was it, that was one of those things that I. I, I, would, I knew I was going to have to write about it, and it was sort of one of the things I realized as I was doing the research, the, the biases. Yeah, the IMF has has so badly been over-optimistic in terms of growth forecasts that a couple of years ago, they actually had to write a chapter explaining why they have been so over-optimistic and they keep getting it wrong. And yeah, with with international relations scholars, the uh, they tend to assume that everything will go poorly. This was actually the, the thing I felt the most nervous about in terms of writing the system worked a couple of years ago because- there's a bias also in how you get things wrong.
0: Yeah, real quick, by the way, The System Worked was your book about how global economic governments work better yep. than a lot of people realize in the aftermath of the financial
1: crisis. Right, that in the fall of 2008, we really thought the system might actually collapse and, and say what you will, it, it certainly did not do that. And one of the things that I realize is that you know, if you're a political scientist or an international relations scholar, or even in some ways a, a potentially a market person, and you predict that doom and gloom will happen and it doesn't happen. That's okay, because you were just being prudent or cautious, or even your warnings prevented the very catastrophe you warned about from actually occurring. If, on the other hand, you say something positive, you know, you make a positive prediction like war as we know it, you know, uh, in 1913, we're so interdependent that war will never happen, or saying in 1989 that history is ending, um, and then it turns out you're wrong, you will get mocked for that. You know, it's far worse to make an optimistic prediction and have that turn out to be wrong than a pessimistic prediction that turns out to be wrong. And that's another bias that we have in terms of trying to forecast the future.
0: It's weird how that also applies to like lowbrow things also or just in individual settings. Like if you say a movie was great and somebody else says, no, actually it sucked, you're the one who looks stupid, even if you're right. (laughs) You know, I mean, that's something that's subjective, but it's kind of strange how like when Mary and I talk and I say something is fantastic, uh, she always ends up mocking me for it, and I feel That's bad. That's true. Me. Yeah, it's bad. <laughs> I'm really critical. You know? Wait, okay.
1: How, so how did you feel about Stranger Things? Let's get to that. I loved more. it. Okay, so see? All right, good. There ahead. is a right answer okay, there. I, there have, I okay. haven't seen it, so... I, think, oh, no, okay. I haven't gotten there yet.
0: Okay, why don't we just go through each of the five known unknowns that are in your paper. Mm-hmm. First one, has the accelerated growth experienced by the developed world since the start of the Industrial Revolution come to an
1: end? Right, so... Essentially, if you take a look at sort of a macro historical scale, uh, what you discover is that basically the almost entirely of human history represents a hockey stick in which the long part of the hockey stick represents basically per capita incomes from like the Neolithic era to about 1800. And there's not a lot of change during that. I mean, there's a few ripples, but nothing really, really significant. Uh, And then the Industrial Revolution happens. And so you actually have significant technological Uh, improvements. And I believe the per capita income of the average English citizen in the United Kingdom between 1820 and 2000 increases something like either, I think, 12-fold over that period, which is the the largest sort of – it's like the Cambrian explosion in in terms of wealth. Um, And that's almost entirely due – to technological innovation, and then as a result of that, much greater amounts of capital investment, as well as demographic, uh, sort of demographic explosion in terms of population. We escaped the Malthusian trap at that point. Right. Before that, we had been in the Malthusian trap where, you know, people grew crops. Uh, If there was any kind of, you know, increase in population, that meant that people had less food because we didn't improve agricultural productivity. And that either got solved through war or famine or disease or what have you. We've escaped that. Which is great. The question is: Is will the pace of technological innovation continue? And there are a lot of skeptics out there. Uh, the most prominent of which is Robert Gordon, uh, who's a, an economist at Northwestern, who basically argues that if you take a look at sort of per capita income increases in the United States, that there is no denying that from about 1880 to about 1980, we got a significant, you know, major increase, um, and that unfortunately, for all the talk about the information revolution and the ways in which the web and, and smartphone technology and so on and so forth was supposed to lead to economic growth. If you look at productivity increases, they have tapered off significantly. And Gordon asks a relatively scary question, which is what if we've essentially spent – the uh the benefits of of all the industrial revolutions and uh information revolution. And as a result, this is the new normal that we're only going to get very limited productivity growth increases for the next century, which means we're essentially in a growth environment like the 18th century, which was not a great century when it came to economic growth. And this is, you know, a hard thing to do because you're trying to predict the future of technological change. And you know, there's that famous quote from uh the head of the US Patent Office back in 1890 suggesting, well what if we should shut down because we really have we've done all the big innovations which was actually an unfair misquote attributed to him as it turns mm-hmm. out but nonetheless the the apocryphal story matters it's tough to predict what the next big thing will be in terms of of being genuinely transformative and that in the sense that the major technological innovations that we grew up with the airplane the telephone the television the computer and so on and so forth all of these things in their own way have gotten somewhat better but there's been no other new innovation you know like that unless you want to like count the segue, and i don't
0: yeah i mean that we don't we don't have sort of have the time here to go through all the different competing theories over what's behind the productivity right. slowdown and whether or not it will continue but it is a very deep point that for the vast majority of human history right or even prehistory, right? Humans have been sort of recognizably human for something like 50,000 years. It's only about 200 years since we've come up with this new model of doing things, right? And so when people appeal to history, In saying that, well, in the past, the economy always adjusted, everybody turned out fine. They're really just talking about the last 200 years, which is minuscule relative to like our overall existence. And
1: economists will tell you that, you know, technological change is responsible for something of between two thirds and three quarters of economic growth over these last 200 years. So that is, at least in the developed world, the crucial variable that's going to matter. Okay, great.
0: Number two, the second known unknown, are there hard constraints on the ability of the developing world to converge to developed
1: country living standards. Right. So Econ 101 says that in some ways developing countries should automatically grow more quickly than the developed world um, because developing countries have a a couple of easy ways of playing catch up. Usually they're developing because they have a lot less capital investment. Uh, than the developed world does. Um, and the second thing is, is that usually they're technologically much more backward. So the advantage that these countries have is that all they really need to do is presumably engage in intense investment in things like infrastructure and so forth. And also, they know what the future of technology looks like. They can just you know catch up to the technological frontier. So countries like Japan um, or the Asian Tigers or to some extent China have played this game and have played it well, You know, uh, engaging in insignificant catch-up. And it looked like for about the last 15 years that you were beginning to see that kind of convergence that Econ 101 would predict would happen. Um, But a funny thing has happened since 2008, which is that essentially almost all of the major advancing developing countries have had lackluster growth rates. In fact, they've underperformed relative to the United States in that same period. China is an exception, although China – did well for a couple of years and now they're significantly paying the price in terms of of, uh, slowing economic growth. And the question is why? And again, there's a couple of different stories you can tell. One is just simple reversion to the mean, which is to say that economists like Danny Roderick and others have pointed out that most economies can't maintain more than 6% economic growth for a couple of years, that eventually – Things will settle because commodity prices fall, or it turns out that the investments that were made are not nearly as productive as people thought. There's another somewhat more disturbing argument that says, uh, and Roderick has also made this, he talks about something called premature post industrialization, which is The industrialization. That's right. Which says that essentially the primary ladder through which countries got rich was they had relatively low wages, they could attract significant amounts of manufacturing capital, they would you know, become an exporter in manufacturing. And more importantly, they would generate decent, you know, high-paying jobs that in and of themselves created a whole penumbra of economic activity, which could then lead to sort of self-sustaining economic growth. The problem we have now is that manufacturing has become so productive, it is, you know, it's the most productive sector of the global economy because it's tradable, that essentially wherever manufacturing sets up production... They don't hire that many people because they don't need to hire that many people. So as a result, even if you win a contract, you know, if you're Laos and, and suddenly Boeing decides to set up a plant there, not that that's happened, but if it were to happen, it wouldn't necessarily lead to the same kind of, of job creation that it would have 20 years ago, 30 years ago, or 40 years so those ago. Those roles are automated now, right. essentially, essentially, done by machines. Exactly. So you know, yeah, you're getting a slight wage increase but, or slight wage benefit, but not all that much. Um, indeed, this is probably one of the reasons why you occasionally see talks about shoring of manufacturing, and manufacturing employment has actually gone up in the United States since 2008, uh, after the 2008 financial crisis, but it's gone up by a very small amount because you don't need that many people.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating, a little bit disturbing. I mean, it's interesting because that's almost like the flip side of the point you raised in question one, which is that this one sector of the economy, of the global economy, has become, in fact, so technologically advanced and so right. productive- that it means nobody ends up getting hired the way right. they used to in that in that sector.
1: Both things can be true because, yeah. again, manufacturing is so productive that actually it's tough to imagine how you're going to wring out further productivity gains from that. And nonetheless, it's so productive, you don't actually need that many workers. It's gone the way of agriculture.
0: Right. And all the other sectors of the economy, meanwhile, are
1: service sectors, slowing, which are- Slowing productivity. Exactly. Right. You
0: or know. low productivity uh, sectors inherently. Uh, cool. Um, number three. Will geopolitical rivalries or technological innovation alter the patterns of economic interdependence?
1: Right. So it's interesting that we're talking about this because there's been a whole spate of articles about this, including, I believe, the FT's Martin Wolf, Mm -hmm. talking about how we've hit peak trade, essentially, Um, that the IMF has warned uh, that part of the reason – one of the reasons for, for slower economic growth is that trade hasn't increased by all that much. Uh, the McKinsey Global Institute, I think, had a study that shows that global flows as a percentage of world output has fallen from something like 51% to 39% over the last five years or so. Now, there's a whole variety of, of possible reasons for why this might be the case. One is the complexity of managing global supply chains. One is just slackening demand. Um, but there are other potential reasons going forward, uh, one of which is the idea that there's geopolitical rivalries. So if Sino- american relations you know, really, really become tense. Right now, we're incredibly economically interdependent with China. If, however, both countries perceive that a future war might be a real live option, then understandably, manufacturers or producers in both countries are going to start to try to segment uh, their production chains to make sure that they're not suddenly caught unawares if a conflict flares uh, flares up. Another related one is the development of alternative energy sources, whether you're talking about fracking or whether you're talking about uh, solar and wind. The one thing that all of these things do is it means we're less reliant on foreign imports uh, to fuel our economy. And so as a result, it creates less of an incentive for certain countries to really care all that much mm-hmm. um, about the the rest of the world. And then the final element to this would be the trend that you're seeing now for financial sanctions, targeted financial sanctions, which is leading some countries to at least grumble about the idea of trying to create an alternative parallel financial arrangement where they can escape the clutches of of U.S. financial regulators. But all of these matter because essentially you can argue that the the most important thing that's happened in the last 10 years in terms of the global political economy is the dog that hasn't barked. That the U.S. and China potentially should have had a great power war already. That China was growing at a really rapid clip. Um, The United States seemed to be stagnating. Historically, this has led to great power conflict. But in this case, it didn't in no small part because the leaders of both the United States and China recognized that they were actually in an interdependent relationship and that war literally would have been violent and problematic and would not have solved any of their problems. If going forward, however, China and the United States become less interdependent on each other, then suddenly the use of force becomes more of a live option. And so that's legitimately disconcerting.
0: Right. Although you also mentioned in the paper that international relations scholars, of which you're one disagree on the extent to which this kind of interdependence actually does stave off conflict?
1: Right. There's So the international relations scholars like to talk about a Kantian triad um, that presumably prevents war, one leg being the increase in the number of democracies. Democracies tend not to fight each other. Uh, one being global governance international organizations as a way of, of helping to keep the peace. The third is economic interdependence. Some people are very strongly in favor of the, the sort of commercial peace argument. Others are skeptics. And then realists sort of look at all of this askance and say, it's all about nuclear weapons. And so to be clear, even if there's lessening economic interdependence, potentially you know the, the prospect of mutually assured destruction can still potentially uh, prevent conflict from really, really flaring up. But that said, it, it, it's generally thought to not hurt. And so the question is, is that if it lessens, it's not so much will that also lead to war, but also will it lead to changes in trade relationships? So during the Cold War, trade followed the flag. Money followed the flag. You know, There was not a lot of bilateral trade between the Soviet bloc and, um, and the West. The question is, would you see a similar kind of fragmentation if you have increases in geopolitical rivalries? And to some degree, you've already seen that in the ways in which Russia has reacted to being put under sanctions by the West, trying to embrace China and so forth.
2: One of those legs that you mentioned is is the democracies tend to not fight each other. And that sort of is a nice segue into your, your next point, which is the, the durability of uh, free market democracies.
1: Right. So it's what I call the end of the end of history, which is I always think Frank Fukuyama has gotten a bad rep uh, for making that argument because it's a a more sophisticated argument than that phrase (laughs) makes it seem. But Fukuyama's argument was essentially that when with the collapse of communism, liberal free market capitalist democracy was the only universal universally appealing model that you were going to be able to find, That, that there might be people who reject it but rejectionists couldn't come up with a universal model that that countries from different civilizational types or different geographies would necessarily accept. What is interesting is that Fukuyama is now talking about things like democratic decay uh, in his books, suggesting that maybe the system is, doesn't seem quite as robust as it used to be. You know, we're talking about an election where Donald Trump might become the leader of the free world, where Great Britain has decided we don't want to be part of the European Union, uh, where you have the Philippines electing... Um, A president who likes to curse out other foreign leaders. Uh, This is a great time for populists and and it's not a great time if you're trying to argue the merits of sort of liberal free market democracy. And you are seeing alternatives being put forward by people that are thought to be potentially more universal. So you have a situation where Hungary's leader um, actually says, I don't look to the West as a political model. I look to Vladimir Putin. You know, it's the idea of that authoritarianism actually might be a superior political model. Or someone like Daniel Bell, who has made the argument that the Chinese system of meritocracy is a superior mode of governance to liberal democracy. And again, it's not whether these people are right per se, it's whether their arguments are seen compelling enough so that other leaders think okay, maybe we were wrong about democracy eventually triumphing. And similarly with capitalism, the notion that free market capitalism was supposed to be the best way of organizing things, 2008 put a pretty large dent into that. And now you're seeing arguments of, no, what we need is something like state-owned enterprises or sovereign wealth funds or national oil companies and development banks that really, you know, the state actually should seize the commanding heights of the economy in some ways, which is the exact same message that Lenin gave, uh, back in the 1920s. So, in some ways, the question is whether this would ever cohere into a singular sort of philosophy that merges, in some ways, with this whole populist nationalism that seems popular now. And that, in and of itself, you know, as, as much as the West has occasionally suffered over the last 25 years, the idea that the model actually might not be thought of as superior anymore—that we have a new ideological contest—you know, I'm old enough to remember what the Cold War was like, and so that that would mean a that would be a game changer in that sense.
0: I want to I want to register a gripe here, right? Not with the paper, but with the scholars who, in particular, have chosen to look to China and think that it actually has um, some superior merits um, to liberal democracy, right? Uh, and it's this because there's a through line here that you can draw between your earlier point, Dan, about recency bias and how we tend to extrapolate from the recent past into the future, uh, and the example of China. China was following the East Asian democratic model, and a fairly textbook example of it, too, that's been followed in the past. It involves catch-up growth, it involves in the beginning some element of protectionism, investment-led export growth, and then eventually, as a country gets closer to the production frontier, there's a rebalancing towards consumption and these other things. That rebalancing can be wrenching, it can be painful, but it's also necessary, and the slower growth is built into the model. That's how it works. And yet people look to China having 10% growth for three decades or whatever, and then they extrapolate from that and they say, well, it's going to grow by 10% for another three or four decades. This is nonsense. And it was predictable that it would turn out to be nonsense. And yet people now look to that model, which involves, as you said, this heavy element of repression, right? This heavy element of authoritarianism and say, well, maybe there's something to it. Bullshit.
1: Right. It's com- oh,
0: we can say that. Not. Awesome. Okay, yeah. Good. Yeah. Be judicious about it. Yeah. No, you can. But you know, okay. I don't even have a question to tag on no, at the end of that. But that's I, I, really I will not shoot my own
1: horn because I I don't always make I, a lot of my predictions have turned out to be wrong. But I did write in 2010, foreign policy asked me to talk about the future of the dollar as the reserve currency, and there was all this talk about the Remimbi was going to replace it and so on and so forth, and I said. Bullshit. There is no way that is going to happen. If you take a look at the actual fundamentals, yeah, China's done amazing growth. It's not going to continue. And financially, it's not necessarily in their interest. And it's a it remarkably underdeveloped capital sector. So I guarantee you the dollar is going to be the reserve currency for the next 5, 10, 15 years. So stop worrying about this. And, you know, fast forward six years later. And that's even more true. And the, the other thing I remember is that back in 2009, 2010, Pew does these surveys of, of global populations asking them questions like, who's the most powerful economy in the world? And back in 2009 and 2010, China started displacing the United States in American responses, in European responses, um, in a lot of countries' responses. And my reaction to that was, you are all idiots. <laughs> um, that was not the case. And what is interesting to note is that this year for the first time it, since then, Pew finally you know, has been doing these surveys. The U.S. has now replaced China again. Um. So it's almost like people have come back to, they, they've recognized that the extrapolation wasn't actually going to take place.
2: That reminds me of one of my favorite quips from your paper, which is that people have been predicting the decline of the American hegemony since the beginning of the American hegemony.
0: Yeah. So- <laughs> it, but it's weird, though, that, that if you look at U.S. GDP as a share of global output, it's actually remained really quite consistent for the last few decades, right? The share for Europe has gone down. The share for East Asia has gone up, but the U.S. has stayed right around like the 20 to 25% yep. range for like three or four decades, right? It's incredible with all these different changes happening. Um, anyways, we actually skipped one. So, this is the last did, one. Yes. Uh, so, the the known unknown we just covered was the potential for these rivalries to emerge to liberal democracy. The last one we'll discuss, though, is will income and wealth inequality persist going forward? To the point when political externalities can no longer
1: be ignored. Right. So you know, one of the, with great wealth often comes great inequality, um, and that's one of the things that has happened over the last two centuries. The Gini coefficient, which is the way we measure economic inequality or income inequality, has gone up in almost every uh, advanced industrialized country. But it's now getting to the point where the inequalities are becoming that much more painfully visible to the rest of us. And furthermore, you're now in a situation where you can argue that the sort of global 1% almost constitutes its own class in some ways. That they all, you know, travel in the same circles. They all go to Davos, they all then go to Art Basel and then they go to TED and then, you know, there's literally this conference Mary circuit. Mary
0: loves her. She's an artist so she loves her some Art Basel. Oh, well there you mm-hmm.
1: go. Okay. I've never been. I don't I I'm sure it's lovely. Um but the the problem with this is that you literally, I mean, it's two things. The first is to what extent will you see increasing resentment of sort of global elites? And this is particularly true if we're going to have a low growth environment. People don't begrudge the rich if everyone is doing reasonably well. But if we're operating in a world where it's only 1% economic growth and the 90% of that 1% goes to you know, the, the really rich, that's going to lead to political blowback in a whole variety of ways. The other problem you have is that if you were part of the global 1%, and I'm sure you've mingled occasionally with the global 1%, if they only talk to each other, they wind up with a very distorted picture of how the rest of us live. So there's this anecdote that I don't think I tell in the, in the paper but is in a book that I'm working on in which Elon Musk is at a dinner um, and he's asked about you know the problems of, of poverty. And Musk says, well, you know, I grew up in South Africa. And now I'm here in Silicon Valley. And so I think that's proof that poverty is not really that big of a problem in South Africa. And that's, yeah. Right. Yes, exactly. Um, And and let me put this way I think even Larry Page, who was at the dinner, laughed at that suggestion. But it it does demonstrate the degree to which that if if you operate in this world, and there's a lot of survey evidence that suggests that people who have that high of a level of income vastly over exaggerate the capabilities and resources that poor people have. They don't realize. Um, The actual situation. Indeed, it actually decreases their altruistic impulses. Mm -hmm. So the question then becomes, to what extent will the sort of global plutocrats first shoot themselves in the foot by saying things like, you know, going after... Uh, by comparing, let's say Barack Obama to the Third Reich, uh, yeah. in letters to the Wall Street Journal, mm-hmm. or by saying, you know, that uh, regulating sovereign wealth funds is the equivalent of Smoot-Hawley, these kinds of, of you know claims and accusations. To what extent will that lead to a degree of political blowback, or? To what degree do these plutocrats decide that they will literally try to influence politicians to the point that they maintain the policies they have? But that in and of itself creates populist blowback, which we have seen all over in the form of Marine Le Pen or Nigel Farage or Donald Trump um, or Bernie Sanders.
2: And you see the kind of billionaires, the the Peter Thiel's getting behind Trump. And there's a big push, obviously, from Silicon Valley for universal basic income to sort of maybe account for some of that or or front run any kind of –
1: Right And to be fair, I, you know not all I mean you are seeing a recognition by some plutocrats of oh, this is a thing we have to deal with," but the question is is you know does does income inequality get addressed to the point where you know, like the New Deal, it actually managed to save capitalism rather than than wreck it?
0: Uh, The paper is Five Known Unknowns About the Next Generation Global Political Economy. You can find it at Brookings. Dan, before we let you go, though, I wanted to have a quick discussion about the geopolitical implications of the presidential election happening now. I'd be happy to. Uh, Just let me get my alcohol first. (laughs) I actually almost don't want to spend too much time talking about Trump, uh, partly because his stance on things changes so quickly. Um, and he has such a loose relationship with the truth that it makes it actually hard to discuss what his policies are because there are no discernible policies. Yes. There are, however, discernible dispositions that he has. Uh, and that's got to be what worries you the most. Right? Yeah, he has
1: a worldview. I mean, he, he doesn't actually know that much. He's, he's really not that bright about international relations. But to be fair, he does have a working theory. And his working theory is that international relations is all about zero-sum Deals. It's all about, you know, it's about bargaining. And if I win, then you have to lose. In some ways, the most telling example of this was um, at the commander in chief forum, the the thing that Matt Lauer interviewed him for. He said, You can tell that my visit to Mexico was a success because they fired the person who invited me down there, Um, which is a really telling comment because even if you think that's true in the short run, life is long. And so, you know, you, you can probably cheat someone once um and then after that it becomes really 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 difficult and and furthermore uh, you know if you take a look at what trump has talked about throughout much of his public life from the late 80s onward he continually seems to think that other countries are getting taking advantage of us even though in retrospect it seems kind of silly so the argument back in the late 80s was that japan was you know that we're losing to japan we're losing everything to japan and i don't think anyone now really is all that concerned about that except for trump um so in in that sense he really does believe that you know both the global economy and world politics is a zero sum relationship and there is no denying that there are zero sum aspects of world politics in particular but an awful lot of world politics has a win-win you know nature to it and that that matters a great deal
2: and there seems to be a sort of lack of appreciation for, to borrow a phrase, strategery, wherein it's almost like the winning is is winning and there's it's, it's very self-actualizing.
1: So this is another mistake that Trump makes, and I think it's sort of the Vladimir Putin school of international relations. It's the notion that if you constantly engage in tactical surprise – That that somehow, you know, rebounds to your benefit constantly. And to be fair, in the short term, there is a grain of truth to that. Putin has managed to annex the Crimea. He's obviously managed to exercise influence in Syria. But another thing that you have to be concerned about, particularly for the United States, is that part of the way you get what you want is by demonstrating credible commitment. It's by saying, this is what I am going to do, and I you can tell I'm going to do this because my reputation is one that I care about.
2: And there are consequences, and I follow through on the things that I say I'm going right,
1: to do. Right, exactly. So tr- on the other hand, Trump's theory of NATO seems to be, well, if a Baltic country is attacked, we'll first make sure that they've actually ponied up their contribution for that year. And then we'll go, or maybe we'll not. Which is not how an alliance works, yeah. um, and it's, it's a bit of a problem. So, yeah, his 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 theory is purely transactional. Um, there is no sort of shadow of the future, and the problem in international relations is there's a very long shadow of the future. Yeah, the world by this view is a place to be carved up, right. and you get what you
0: can, and other people get what they can, and yeah. that's it. Rather than a place to be made better. Exactly. Any discussion of Hillary Clinton's foreign policy is necessarily going to be a little bit more nuanced. Um, So I guess uh, the one question I have is this in terms of her approach to um, conflict, right? it seems like she would be, by her language, a little bit more hawkish than the Obama administration. You can see this in a few different things. When she was secretary of state, she was more in favor of intervention in Syria. Um, I think uh, by Jeffrey Goldberg's reporting, we saw her also wanting to be a little bit more, not militaristic at all, but a little bit more aggressive Mm -hmm. um, in defending interests in the South China Sea. And I guess uh, in terms of what she would do about Israel-Palestine, she certainly has been, I think, more vocally supportive of Netanyahu and of Israel uh, than Obama has, where he has sort of a famously uh, (laughs) difficult relationship uh, with Netanyahu. So I guess uh, my question is, how do you think uh, a Clinton administration would handle Conflict intention relative to the way the Obama administration has handled it
1: I think you, there's no denying that that the Obama administration has clearly been burned by i mean I think they, their their founding sort of scarring lesson was first not to to avoid another Iraq and then second it, with respect to Libya, never again essentially. Uh, because Obama was very explicit when, when the Libya intervention took place that he did not think this was in the U.S. strategic interest. He was doing this to prevent what he thought was going to be a human rights catastrophe. But both the the sort of policy and political blowback of that for him, I think, convinced him, you know, as we, when the Syria debate started moving up, we're not going to do that. Um, and he's sort of reveled in the fact that that he... Defied the Washington consensus or establishment uh, foreign policy establishment view on this. Clinton is clearly much more comfortable with the foreign policy establishment, and Clinton is more comfortable with the U.S. exercise of force. Now, I don't think there's a lot of sort of loose talk about how this just makes her a neocon in in you know Democrats' clothing or something like that. I think that actually is a bad misread of of Hillary Clinton's perspective on this, which is in some ways her first instinct is to be multilateral on these things. She what what she wants to do is get her ducks in a row before. Force or coercion is used; she wants to make sure that NATO allies or our Pacific Rim allies or partners you know potential partners like China and Russia, whatever the case may be, would agree with the u s that everyone gets on the same page and then you actually try to intervene in the situation. so I think she would still be somewhat more cautious, but that said, I, I think yet yeah, you 're correct that she 's going to be less risk averse with the use of force than I think Obama is. But I think what she would also do is probably make a far more concerted push for U.S. leadership with a sort of broad uh, multilateral coalition in whatever trouble spots that we're talking about.
0: Okay, great. Uh, That is the end of the interview portion of this episode. Uh, But before we let you go, Dan, we're going to do some long form recommendations. Uh, Mary, since I actually sprung this on Dan at the last minute, why don't you go first uh, we'll you in case Dan seconds. needs a few yeah. more minutes to come up with one? And... <laughs> i trying to make
2: my answer really long. Yeah. <laughs> um, so my long-form recommendation would be uh, Fox and Prey by Gabriel Sherman in New York Mag. Sorry if that was yours, Dan. It is sort of a tour de force. It's really wonderful to watch a reporter like very much hitting on all cylinders and, and very much in his element. So um, it's a horrifying story of the power and intrigue and terrible stuff, um, really restraining myself from cursing here, that went down at Fox News under the leadership of Roger Ailes. It's also on all on all fronts kind of an impressive piece of journalism and a a terrifying subject.
0: Uh, Dan, uh, what should our listeners be uh, reading or watching or listening to?
1: So I will recommend a book um, that came out uh, last month or two months ago by uh, Rosa Brooks called uh, How Everything Became War and How the Military Became Everything. Um, Rosa Brooks went into the Obama administration uh, as a deputy assistant secretary um, to deal with peacekeeping. Uh, She worked uh, under Michelle Flournoy, who was the undersecretary of defense. Um, this is a woman who sort of grew up, you know, simultaneously from sort of a radical left background thinking war is bad, war is bad, war is bad. And then during the 90s began to learn or appreciate the use of force, you know, in places like Bosnia or Kosovo to prevent uh, um, genocide. And then, of course, in Iraq, you know, was was also scarred by Iraq. So she's someone who has clearly sort of very ambivalent feelings about the American use of force and, and the American use of the military. And the book is essentially about Brooks's learning how things are on the inside when she's at the Pentagon and the relationship, you know, the the way the Pentagon thinks about the use of force, the occasionally contentious relationship between the Pentagon and the White House on these issues. Um, And it's a very open and honest and candid memoir of what her experiences were trying to deal with all this. And it's to her credit that she doesn't, you know, you don't come away with the book thinking, oh, she's got this all worked out, because these are really Tough, thorny, yeah. messy questions um and so as someone you know as someone who has occasionally wondered would what would i ever do if I worked for the government it was it was particularly interesting to read.
0: Mine uh, is a bit simpler. It's uh, it's the Long Form Podcast, which is one of my favorites. Um, they did an interview with Katherine Schultz, who's a writer at uh, The New Yorker, and it's a terrific interview. Uh, she wrote, for our listeners who aren't familiar with Katherine Schultz's writing, she wrote this piece in The New Yorker last year about a massive earthquake that is going to wreck the better part of the Pacific Northwest, it is probably going to happen, right? It's not like one of these kind of pie in the sky things. The science behind it seems pretty solid. It was terrifying, but really quite uh, intensely and beautifully written. Um, And she also is the author of a book on being wrong. Uh, And the book itself is as much about the nature of individuality and the prism through which we all see the world, which is different for all of us uh, as it is about being wrong itself. And it's a real delight. So definitely check that out. Uh, Dan, first of all, thanks for being here, man. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Mary, we'll catch you here again soon, I hope. All right. To our listeners, uh, send us an email with feedback to alphachat at ft.com. You can also call us at 917-551-5012. That's a U.S. number. The country code is plus one if you're an overseas listener. Leave a review and rate the show on iTunes. It really does help people find us. You can also see show notes and links to everything we just discussed at ft.com forward slash alpha chat you can find all three of us on twitter dan is at dan dresner mary is at m d c that's mary dryden that's great. Childs. excellent and i'm at cardiff garcia the one known known about alpha chat that really matters is the amy Keene, our producer and editor is super amazing Woo! thanks for everything amy <laughs> thanks for everything amy and thanks again to our listeners we'll see you here again next week for another episode